Holy Spirit is speaking to me. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is calling me to in my life. And I think a lot of us have the idea about the Holy Spirit working that the Holy Spirit would work something like a, a coach and a quarterback, if you guys are familiar with football. If not, in, in NFL football at least, the coach has like a microphone on the side. And in the quarterback's helmet, there's uh, speakers. So what happens is the coach calls the play in from the sidelines. You'll see if you watch that film, so the, the quarterback will have his hands over his ears and then he'll run that play. And I think that's often how we think about how the Holy Spirit will work in our lives. It's like the Holy Spirit's there on the sidelines and he's like, at four o'clock, you will go to the Save Our Foods on Main Street. And at around seven, there will be a brunette. With 16, nine okay? You will ask her about your dogs. And then we'll share the good news about the Lord Jesus. This is like kind of how we think about what the Spirit's going to do. And, and hey, I hope that God speaks to those of us sometimes in this way. And uh, I'm not discounting, you know, please, I don't want to, like, there's 25 of you and I'll set at 4 o'clock and say, look, uh, I know it's not a word for God. But here's what I'm trying to say. We, we, the Spirit will speak however the Spirit wants to speak. Uh, we don't need to choose. But what Galatians is trying to tell us here is that the voice of the Spirit is always drawing us to these things. That this would be more and more the identity of who we are and who we are. That you are a person who is adopted. That you are wanted by God. And that we all have those moments in our lives where we just assume we're not. God care less about us. And the voice of the Spirit is drawing us back. Those moments where we cry out and we assume we're just falling out to, you know, whatever, into the sky, and nothing is coming back and the voice of the Spirit is there to say those words that have spoken over Jesus' life to us, that you are loved, that you are blessed. And we have these moments where we just assume God doesn't have good things for us, because He's not giving us what we want. And the voice of the Spirit is there to say, God blesses us with your gifts. Maybe they're not the ones you want, but they're always what you need. God is here to give His best. And so every time you hear that voice in your life, that is the Spirit drawing you in that direction. And any time you see someone in our community or anywhere else that doesn't believe those things, that's, that's turned away in the direction away from God, maybe it's just saying, oh, I, I don't think He actually cares in your community group, in your friend group. Any time the Spirit wants you to come alongside them and say, no, 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 God cares. God loves you. God has asked for you. Any time you do that, you are working along with, with the Spirit and drawing them back. And so sometimes I think we just have, we're stuck with a football helmet kind of way of thinking. And I pray God those things happen sometimes. But this is what Paul is saying, just in very simple, normal ways, that Bible ways that God wants to see us at the cross here. And so that's what we talked about last week. So this week we're going to look at passage again. This is another one of these things. What does it mean for those people who are, have God's Spirit with us, that we're centered on Jesus, what is our identity? And so Paul writes in Galatians 5 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. For freedom that Christ has set us free. So it's saying here, as people, we're centered on Jesus and the Spirit in us, we are free. We're free. Now we're going to talk about what freedom is in a minute and go through this a little bit more, but we have to back up and do uh, a previous question, which is that if we're free by Jesus, it means that at some point we weren't free. The Bible would say something like we were stuck or we were occupied or we were trapped, or enslaved, or locked up. It kind of uses all of these different words. And that's a huge claim. Because if we were to go out just onto the streets, like onto the today, today, and just start talking, as you sometimes see there's people like a or something like this, and they're trying to preach to people, that say like, 
you are enslaved, and Jesus Christ has set you free. Is that the Lord Jesus Christ? And people, it just doesn't make any sense to think to people that you would be stuck. And so we need to we need to go back a little bit and talk about why the Bible looks at her, how the Bible looks at us being stuck and captive. So let's just do it in two different ways quickly. The first is, is a bounded way that we get stuck. And the second is going to be a fuzzy way that we get stuck. So let's talk about the bounded way first. So the Bible would say that every culture and every group has beliefs and behaviors. That's just normal, that's the way that you form a group identity. At the time of writing here, when Paul's writing the letters to the Galatians, the Jewish people have lost, but they have a very thick practice and belief around their group of people. So things like circumcision, things like special food laws, kosher food laws, and, and celebrations and special days, these are really important to the Jewish people. And everybody, every group that we come from, every ethnicity, uh, every family has different beliefs and behaviors that they have. But the Bible says when we let these things become boundaries, when they become ways that we measure people, when I say, I know I'm okay because I'm on the inside of this group, I practice these things, and I know you're not okay because you're on the outside, that's when they become very problematic. There's a Jewish prayer that, that went like this, thank God, that thank you God that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a Gentile, and I'm not a slave. This is their boundaries. And it becomes a value system. Say those people are out, and I know I'm okay, and I'm in. Any time we do this, the Bible says we turn ourselves into oppressors and other people into oppressed. There's a level of being stuck there. Both people are stuck within those roles: people who are inside and people who are out. As an example, on Friday we had a National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. So what is this? What is this day? It's basically talking about when a culture came to Canada and it did exactly this thing. Where it took the first, they said our culture, they had they had big practices around their culture. But they but they took this step further, which is to create a boundary, which is to say our culture is better than our culture. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take your language and your culture away from you and force you to become like us. Systematic colonization, we use that word today. That's exactly what uh, this is talking about, that in mounted ways we create people who are oppressors and oppressing and make boundaries. And, and so we, we uh, are learning about that now as Canadians as we celebrate the National Day of Truth Reconciliation. But it also continues to happen today in very small ways. Let me just give you one little example. So on Friday, I took my kids to Orange Shirt Day at Grandview Park uh, on the grocery drive. So my daughter, one of my daughters, is the kind of person who just likes to know all the information before uh, you do anything or go anywhere. It kind of makes her feel safe, it makes her feel okay, it makes her understand. What's going on? So Thursday night, we're, I'm telling her, hey, we're going to go to this thing on Friday morning. She's trying to plan her whole day Friday. So she's like, what time does it start? I'm the opposite kind of person where I don't know no details. So, um, anyways, I want to my phone. Uh, so anyway, I don't know any details of what's going on. So we look at the Facebook event. It says that the ceremony is going to start at 10.30. Okay, so I have a call until 10. So then um, my daughter said, well, we have to leave pretty much right away. We're going to over to this morning. Ten o'clock rolls around, I'm not ready. She's waiting outside. She's like, come on, Dad, we gotta go. We're gonna be late. I'm like, it's okay, I'm going to this. It hasn't turned out to be a problem in four years. Um, except with your mom, that is a problem. Uh, so, anyway, she gets annoyed, she's like, we need to fight faster, we get there at 10 20, okay? Let it be, this is on record, right? At 10 20, we got there, 10 minutes early, which often happens. She's stressed. We walk around, we look at all the different things that are there at 10 25, 
seat. So we go and we sit down. Sure enough, 10.30, no one on stage, nothing happened. But I was like, looking around, looking at me, 10.35, you can visibly start to see the stress coming on her face. 10.40, she turns and she looks to me and she's like, what's going on? Where is everybody? What's happening? So, my daughter is, uh, is an example of the Western way of looking at time. We view time as a very objective thing. Uh, the philosopher Heidegger calls this clock time. Whatever it says on the clock, and whatever it says on the, on the invitation, that's the time that everything should happen. And that's the way that my daughter looks at time. But that's not the way that most traditional cultures look at science. Chinese culture doesn't look at time this way. My understanding indigenous culture doesn't look at time this way. They have, they have a different perspective on time, which is relational time. Which is the time that things start is when everybody shows up, especially the elders. Those are the important people, and we have to keep time relational. And so my daughter is coming, we're coming up against two different visions of time. But what can happen is that we can go just beyond this vision of time and like different cultures, and it can become something that goes beyond preference and it becomes a value statement. So for, for those of us who have a Western view of time, we sit there and we're like, what's going on? Like, these people not have claws. Like, do they not know that we're all just sitting here on the grass and we're just waiting? Like, they're wasting our time on other things to do today. They, they're not respecting me and my time. And if you've ever been at a traditional, in a part of a traditional culture, they'll say the opposite. So like, don't you understand? Like, don't, the other people aren't here. Don't you value their relationships? Like, why do you just care about starting on time? That's about you. We're talking about us. And what happens is that these, these things trend over from becoming just a preference into a value statement. And as soon as they do, Paul is saying that we create now, we created oppressors and people who oppress. Because we're saying certain things about people who are different than us. And I know I'm okay because I'm on the inside. I know they're not okay because they're on the inside. As a funny sidebar, uh, I'd like to tell you how the conversation with my daughter finished. Um, so I, she's like, what's going on? So I explained what I just explained to you. You know, traditional cultures, Chinese culture, Indigenous culture, they run on a different set of time. It's a relational set of time. We're talking about it, and she goes, she goes, okay, so I keep time like my school keeps time. She's like, I show up, the bell rings at 9 o'clock, and I have to go inside, and that's the way that I keep time at time. But Indigenous people keep time like our church keeps time. <laughs> she said, we tell everyone starts at 10, but we actually just start when everybody shows up. <laughs> Thank you for helping me. Yes. So that's one way, a bound way of creating people who are oppressed and oppressed. It's a small way, but it shows that. But there's also a other way of doing this. Because instead of having a group story, what we do is we have an individualized story. And so to be free here is to be able to do whatever I want. So this is kind of how we call this like the Canadian version of freedom. That things need to be available, accessible, attainable to me and my wants and my desires. To the degree that they are, that's the degree that I'm free. To do whatever I want as long as it's not going to hurt anyone else. And I want to be really, really clear. This is not just people outside of this space. People that don't attend church on Sunday. This is all of us. This is exactly how we look at our freedom, obviously. Because if, to the degree that we're paying it, this is the way we look at freedom. I'm trying to get, I'm free when I can have my wants and needs fulfilled. And the Bible says this actually creates people who are chained for stuff. 
oppressing oppressors. Let me just give you three examples of how it does that. It says, the first step it says is this kind of freedom actually lies to us. It lies to us. It promises that we're free, or we think we're free, but we actually are not. Let me just give you two examples. The first is that this kind of freedom always has a cost associated with its need. Many of us have phones, uh, you know, smartphones in this room, and we don't need to download any app that we want to. My kids are always doing this, like when I'm at work, I'll get consistently uh, requests for them to play like it's like a bulldozer game. I'm like, I'm sure you have three bulldozer games. They're like, this is when you get the bulldozer games. And so then, and then they'll say to me, because they know I'm cheap, but that is free. And I say to them, it's never actually free. And exhausted because they need to perform again and again and again. 
And I gotta say, maybe it's just getting older, probably it's getting older, but I see this in the youth and the young people that I talk to. Unbelievable. There's so much pressure on them. And we think, well, you can close your oyster. What they feel is this exact thing. Anxiety, exhaustion, and sometimes paralyzation because they know every decision could be wrong. This kind of freedom leads to anxiety and exhaustion. The third is that this kind of freedom leads to enslavement to our immediate versions. I put my story in the center and leads to enslavement, meaning to be enslaved to my immediate versions. Maybe nobody says this better than Leslie Jameson. She wrote a wonderful book called Recovering about her a journey with alcohol and alcoholism. Again, she's not a follower of Jesus, but she charts up her story and she talks about how at the beginning she felt very free to drink. And alcohol gave her what she wanted. It satisfied her immediate urges. That she could, um, you know, be more social. That she, the world, some of the, the sharp edges of the world could be wanted. And that um, she could escape what was going on in her life. But she found out through her journey with alcohol and many other people's story of alcohol that her, uh, it led, instead of freedom, it led to addiction. It led to chains. And here's what she says beautifully, that addiction is the opposite of freedom, because addiction is always a story that has already been told. Because it inevitably repeats itself. Because it grinds down, ultimately for everyone, to the same demolished and reductive and recycled core. Desire, use, repeat. Desire, use, repeat. We think our lives are unique snowflake, but actually it's this. The lives, our lives are just characterized by this story that everyone else's lives are not free at all. And you might say, well, I'm super grateful that I'm not an addict. And that is great if you're not an alcoholic, fantastic. But her book was very, very popular. It was read by more than just people who were alcohol addicted, I imagine. And why? Why is it so popular? You know, Gabor Mate, who's a local doctor here, says this, in the dark mirror of stories of fiction, our own features are unmistakable. And we shudder at recognition. When people tell stories of addiction, we see their story reflected in their own, their honesty. And it's amazing when she writes, she says, I feel humiliated writing about this time in my life. But she writes so honestly and broadly, and I, I can see my own story reflected in it. Desire, use, repeat. She says, Our stories all end up reducing. We're not free, we're actually stuck. They reduce down to the same core as everyone else. She writes beautifully where she felt at the end of that, in the claustrophobic crawl sequence. I get sucked down, dropped down to the core of the way. So this is the bad news of the Bible, that we're not really free. If we end up in a bounded way of thinking about it, or in a way of thinking about it, we create people who are oppressed and oppressors. But here's the good news. Paul says, Christ is set free. Now in the original language, uh, this verb is, is written in the Aorist text, which I just say to remind you that I did do some homework this and uh, just to flex a little bit up here. Now, the, the, the reason I say that is because it's talking about that tense in the Greek is talking about a single action that happened in the past that's complete and has ramifications for each of us today. An event in the past that is completed and it's done and it has ramifications for us today that Christ has set us free. Something has happened in the past with the person of Jesus. You know, one of the words that's used about God is that he's sovereign, which means that he's free. He doesn't have to ask anyone or do anything for anybody else. But the sovereign God in Jesus chooses not to just be free, to make his own, you know, to do whatever he wants and cut ties with us, but rather he comes to earth 
He tethers himself to us as broken, as enslaved, as stuck people. And he comes and gives over control of his life in order that we can be free. This seems to be what freedom is and the definition of freedom for our God. But through his life, his death, his resurrection, that he actually sets other people free. And now we're all for free because Christ has set us free. But Paul says something kind of funny here uh, after this. He said, it's for freedom Christ has set us free. It's kind of a weird verse. For freedom, Christ has set us free. There seems to be two types of freedom at work here. And the first one, I think, is what we're very familiar with. That Christ has freed us from all these things. So all these ways that we enslave ourselves, we enslave others, the ways that we uh, you know, are stuck. God has freed us from all of these different things. So the structures that keep us and others stuck in relationships of oppressor and oppressor. The ways that our freedom creates chains for ourselves and other people, the ways that our media bridges are running our life. We're free from all of those things. And Christians love to emphasize that part of the story. We're free. These things don't hold you down anymore. Because it goes along, especially in our Western narrative, we're kind of like, we've won, you know? Someone's won, we can conquer, we bring. And it's true, that's part of the story. That's part of the freedom that Paul is talking about. We are free from all of these things. But Paul says there's a secondary part to freedom. For freedom. That we are free for something. To become something and to become someone. That thanks to Jesus and his freeing work, which has been done in the Christ events, we are now free to become someone. We're free to fall. We're free to become who we were always called to be. New humans. That look like the true human Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to discipleship in the call of freedom for Jesus. And this is a vision for each of our lives that we become the first people that we were made to be before the beginning of time that God has called us to be these kinds of people who will lend and reflect the glory of God into the world. So how does this play out in real life? Let's make this really practical. Paul helps us here. He uses two case studies of how we can actually live this up in our lives and in our world. So let's, let's read together. So verse 1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. You know, this is like that William Wallace. Freedom, you know. If you, if you didn't grow down in the 90s and early 2000s, you probably don't know that one. But there's this like iconic Bill Gibson, like freedom, yeah, that comes here. We're free. But then he says, stand firm, then. And to me, this is paradoxical. It's like saying to someone who's in jail, well, you're free. Don't go anywhere. And you're like, oh, which is it? What am I supposed to do? He says, stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And here I want to say, oh, I thought I was free, and now you're saying I could become a slave again. Yeah. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. We can be free, but somehow we can go backwards. Back into this kind of slavery. Here's what he says, verse 2, take note. I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourself get circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he's obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. And so Paul is saying here is you can say yes to Jesus, you can accept that initial freedom, but you can actually go backwards by creating boundaries again. And in this scenario, that's what's happening in, in the Galatian church. People were going and saying that you can follow Jesus, but then you have to obey the kosher food laws. You have to special, uh, celebrate our special days. You have to get circumcised. Now, that's not our context today. 
Uh, after I was speaking to in preparation for this, said, as far as I know, we have never checked circumcision for any church membership uh, indications. And I can say with confidence that we have also done the same. Um, but it doesn't mean that we still don't create boundaries. And I'll just tell you a bit from my own story how I was. When I started to follow Jesus, like I put him in the center and I was excited and I was passionate and I was moving towards him, one of the things that I started doing a lot was learning. I love to learn. And I was like, oh, let's, let's start learning about God, theology, learning to study God. And so I would learn more and more and more, and I was trying to get more understanding about who God was. And the thing that was, was crazy is that my theology actually became so unbelievably good that it became unbearably bad to everybody that I met. Because I was creating boundaries. And I was using that as a way to know that I was okay. I'm okay because I know more than this person. I, I'm, I understand more. My theology is so good that those people over there are not quite as good. You know, I'm a style plus plus Christian. So I, I accepted Jesus, but I started creating boundaries right away and there. With something that's good. Theology. What about you? What about us? What are some of the ways that we might be creating boundaries? Once again, even though we started as three people, we're ending back in this oppressor, oppressing. So what's the remedy? How do we stand for our first thought? For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. This is probably the passage that has just been on humble ground in my mind this week as I prepare. It's an unbelievable passage. It just talks about humility. Really, that's the key. Because how did we receive the Spirit? Was it something that I did? No, no, no. The freedom that Christ has brought, the event of the past, that He has put His Spirit the Spirit of Sonship that cries out of Father and receives the Word of God back to you that you are okay, that you are loved as the Son of God. That's all the gift. It's a gift, it's grace. And it's the vision of not being somewhere, someone who's landed on the inside of something, but someone who's becoming someone. That's what Paul is saying here. I'm really perfect, but I'm moving in this direction. It's a centered and not a bounded perspective. That I'm awaiting something, that there's a great hope. That I'm becoming more like Jesus hopefully day after day, but there's this great hope eventually that I have, where I will meet the true human face to face, Jesus, and I'll become what I was always made to be. I'm not there yet. I see Jesus dimly now, and I'm moving in his direction, and I'm hopefully becoming more like him day after day, but I'm not there yet. I haven't in a while. So it's an ultimately humble position that Paul is asking us to take. That's the remedy to balance that the way that we create boundaries. It's a gift. Grace is a gift and becoming someone that has it for life. How are you doing at cultivating humility in your life? For Paul, he says, if you want to live as free people, it means to be a person who's humble because Jesus Christ is humble. And he's brought freedom. Okay, the second morning and the last one. It's the same pattern that we see. Verse 13, it says, you are called to be free brothers and sisters. So it's great, and you'll let it rain. It's free time. But then he says, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Again, there's this thing, you can go backwards, this idea, that we can use our freedom to once again put our stories at the center. We accept Jesus, and we say, oh, your story is most important, but then we slowly and sneakily put ours back at the center. And we use Jesus to bless whatever it is that we want, whatever it is that we think. And our stories are right back in the middle. You know, my wife and I, we have this, well, I have this joke, she doesn't really 
take part in it too much. But she'll, you know, she can decide between two different things that are happening. She's like, oh, I kind of want to go to yoga, but I'd also like to stay at home and hang out with you. I'll say to her often, well, just do what the good Lord said. Just do whatever you feel. And then she rolls her eyes at me at that moment in time, which is an appropriate response. But I think that is, there's a truth to that of how we oftentimes think about Jesus. Whatever I feel, whatever I want, God basically comes in and blesses. And we're right back in the fuzzy spot. Because it's not Jesus who's at the center, and that's the real dangerous thing. Your wants and your needs are super important. We need to learn to narrate our stories. But in that scenario, Jesus is not at the center anymore. It's me and my wants and my desires who have gone back. I'm just baptizing our story and using Jesus as a magic stick to try to get what I want. And, and Paul said this would be the slavery again as an opportunity for the flesh. So how do we combat it? He says, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Serve one another through love. Maybe the most fascinating verse in this whole passage. Because when I think of freedom, the last thing I think of is serving people. I think freedom is like the, the opportunity not to serve anyone. You know, Sartre, uh, the philosopher, said, hell is other people. Uh, and, and so you might be thinking in your mind, that's what I'm talking about. Freedom is the opposite of being around other people and their wants and needs. It's about me and my wants and my needs and my desires. And, and when I have that response to this passage, I realize I'm stuck in my culture's view of what freedom truly is. But it actually, so Paul says, serve one another, but it's actually saying something even deeper than that. Because this word serve is used in verse 1. Except it's not translated servant, it's translated slave. That's the word that Paul's using. To become tied to each other out of love. That's the way to truly be free. Does it sound like free to you? It sure doesn't to me. It's because, like I said, I'm wrapping this question story of, of that being free is being able to pursue what I want. Not what you want, but what I want. But that's not Paul's view of freedom. Because his view of freedom is rooted in a person, which is Jesus. And if Christ is freedom, then to be free is not to be free from other people, people's needs, but actually to be free to serve people. To serve them. That I am not free because my life is set in the story of Jesus. That I have received, as the Bible says, blessing. And now I'm able to serve and bless other people. I'm not serving you to try to get something from you, like the emails may indicate that's not me, okay? I'm not coming to serve you to, to know that I'm okay. I'm not coming to serve you so that I hope you'll like me. I'm coming to serve you because I've been served by someone else. And now I'm free to serve. That's Paul's vision of freedom, that we are made to look like Jesus, and when we put ourselves in that story, we actually become people who are free. Free to receive the grace of God and the service of other people, but also free to serve. You know, the old hymn, um, that, that talks about freedom. You know, it doesn't go this way. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I arose, went forth, and found a church with a really great history. That's not how it goes. It also doesn't say, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I arose, went forth, and found a group of people that expect nothing of me. No, the whole thing goes like this. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I arose, went forth, and followed. But there's this invitation in freedom to follow Jesus which means to serve this family. 
know, where and how are you exercising your freedom by serving us? We have a lot of slots to fill here, as we talked about. Now, but there's also, it's not just about this church. It's about God's people in general and people in general. Are you free to serve? Have you been truly freed by Jesus? That your story is not at the center, but you're able to give to other people. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free, so let's not settle for full freedom. For freedom of, of the boundaries that where we're trying to keep people in and out. We're free of where we make our stories the center again. But let's live in true freedom, not family or cousin, but centered on Jesus, living in hope as people who serve one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. It's challenging because it touches on um, I think something that we deeply think and feel about what freedom is. That we long to be free. And we have this deep longing of it as well, I think, for our choice to be here, for our needs to be here. Uh, and those are really true longings for each person who's to be included, to know that world. And so I pray that you would meet us in that space, you would minister to us. Those words of love, those words of acceptance through Christ, the words of grace, that as we come to a prayer, we would be able to bring forward all of our hopes and our desires and receive the freedom that you offer. The freedom not to live in those stories, but to receive yours, that we are children, that we're heirs, that we're loved, that we're set free by Christ. And that we're now free, just not from those things, but we're free to be people that look like Jesus. I pray for each person in this room that we become people who are just following you, who are moving towards you, that we keep us humble, that we would take on the humility of Christ, and that we would be people who are open to serve, to serving your people and coming like you so that we can be free um, and live in your soul. So as we worship, as we pray, as we take communion, we make these things more true of, of me and of us and of this community.